0: Chapter One of The Wrong Box This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Antiminter The Wrong Box by Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne. Chapter One in which morris suspects how very little does the amateur dwelling at home at ease comprehend the labours and perils of the author and when he smilingly skims the surface of a work of fiction how little does he consider the hours of toil consultation of authorities researches in the bodleian correspondence with learned and illegible germans in one word the vast scaffolding that was first built up and then knocked down to while away an hour for him in a railway-train. Thus I might begin this tale with a biography of Tonti—birthplace, parentage, genius, probably inherited from his mother, remarkable instance of precocity, etc., and a complete treatise on the system to which he bequeathed his name. The material is all beside me in a pigeon-hole, but I scorn to appear vainglorious. Tonti is dead, and I never saw any one who even pretended to regret him. And as for the tontine system, a word will suffice for all the purposes of this unvarnished narrative. A number of sprightly youths, the more the merrier, put up a certain sum of money, which is then funded in a pool under trustees. Coming on for a century later, the proceeds are fluttered for a moment in the face of the last survivor, who is probably deaf, so that he cannot even hear of his success, and who is certainly dying, so that he might just as well have lost. The peculiar poetry and even humour of the scheme is now apparent, since it is one by which nobody concerned can possibly profit. But its fine, sportsmanlike character endeared it to our grandparents. When Joseph Finsbury and his brother Masterman were little lads in white-frilled trousers, their father, a well-to-do merchant in Cheapside, caused them to join a small but rich tontine of seven-and-thirty lives. A thousand pounds was the entrance fee, and Joseph Finsbury can remember to this day the visit to the lawyers, where the members of the tontine, all children like himself, were assembled together, and sat in turn in the big office chair and signed their names, with the assistance of a kind old gentleman in spectacles and wellington boots. He remembers playing with the children afterwards, on the lawn at the back of the lawyer's house, and a battle royal that he had with a brother, Tontina, who had kicked his shins. The sound of war called forth the lawyer from where he was dispensing cake and wine to the assembled parents in the office, and the combatants were separated, and Joseph's spirit, for he was the smaller of the two, commended by the gentleman in the Wellington boots, who vowed that he had been just such another at the same age. Joseph wondered to himself if he had worn at that time little Wellingtons and a little bald head, and when, in bed at night, he grew tired of telling himself stories of sea-fights, he used to dress himself up as the old gentleman, and entertain other little boys and girls with cake and wine. In the year 1840 the Thirty-Seven were all alive. In 1850 their numbers had decreased by six— In 1856 and 1857 business was more lively, for the Crimea and the mutiny carried off no less than nine. There remained, in 1870, but five of the original members, and at the date of my story, including the two Finsburys, but three. By this time Masterman was in his seventy-third year. He had long complained of the effects of age, having long since retired from business and now lived in absolute seclusion under the roof of his son Michael, the well-known solicitor. Joseph, on the other hand, was still up and about, and still presented but a semi-venerable figure on the streets in which he loved to wander. This was the more to be deplored, because Masterman had led, even to the least particular, a model British life. Industry, regularity, respectability, and a preference for the four cents are understood to be the very foundations of a green old age." All these Masterman had eminently displayed, and here he was, Abigendo, at seventy-three, while Joseph, barely two years younger, and in the most excellent preservation, had disgraced himself through life by idleness and eccentricity. Embarked in the leather trade, he had early wearied of business, for which he was supposed to have small parts. A taste for general information, not properly checked, had soon begun to sap his manhood, There is no passion more debilitating to the mind, unless perhaps it be that itch of public speaking which it not infrequently accompanies or begets. The two were conjoined in the case of Joseph. The acute stage of this double malady, that in which the patient delivers gratuitous lectures, soon declared itself with severity, and not many years had passed over his head before he would have travelled thirty miles to address an infant school. He was no student— His reading was confined to elementary textbooks and the daily papers. He did not even fly as high as cyclopedias. Life, he would say, was his volume. His lectures were not meant, he would declare, for college professors. They were addressed direct to the great heart of the people. And the heart of the people must certainly be sounder than its head, for his lucubrations were received with favour. That entitled, How to Live Cheerfully on Forty Pounds a Year, created a sensation among the unemployed education its aims objects purposes and desirability gained him the respect of the shallow-minded as for his celebrated essay on life insurance regarded in its relation to the masses read before the working men's mutual improvement society isle of dogs it was received with a literal ovation by an unintelligent audience of both sexes and so marked was the effect that he was next year elected honorary president of the institution an office of less than no emolument since the holder was expected to come down with a donation but one which highly satisfied his self-esteem while joseph was thus building himself up a reputation among the more cultivated portion of the ignorant his domestic life was suddenly overwhelmed by orphans The death of his younger brother Jacob saddled him with the charge of two boys, Morris and John, and in the course of the same year his family was still further swelled by the addition of a little girl, the daughter of John Henry Hazeltine, Esquire, a gentleman of small property and fewer friends. He had met Joseph only once at a lecture-hall in Holloway, but from that formative experience he returned home to make a new will, and consign his daughter and her fortune to the lecturer. Joseph had a kindly disposition, and yet it was not without reluctance that he accepted this new responsibility, advertised for a nurse, and purchased a second-hand perambulator. Morris and John he made more readily welcome, not so much because of the tie of consanguinity, as because the leather business, in which he hastened to invest their fortune of thirty thousand pounds, had recently exhibited inexplicable symptoms of decline. A young but capable Scot was chosen as manager to the enterprise, and the cares of business never again afflicted Joseph Finsbury. Leaving his charges in the hands of the capable Scot, who was married, he began his extensive travels on the continent and in Asia Minor. With a polyglot testament in one hand and a phrase-book in the other, he groped his way among the speakers of eleven European languages— The first of these guides is hardly applicable to the purposes of the philosophic traveller, and even the second is designed more expressly for the tourist than for the expert in life. But he pressed interpreters into his service, whenever he could get their services for nothing, and by one means and another filled many notebooks with the result of his researches. In these wanderings he spent several years, and only returned to England when the increasing age of his charges needed his attention, The two lads had been placed in a good but economical school, where they had received a sound commercial education, which was somewhat awkward, as the leather business was by no means in a state to court inquiry. In fact, when Joseph went over his accounts, preparatory to surrendering his trust, he was dismayed to discover that his brother's fortune had not increased by his stewardship, even by making over to his two wards every penny he had in the world— that would still be a deficit of seven thousand eight hundred pounds. When these facts were communicated to the two brothers in the presence of a lawyer, Morris Finsbury threatened his uncle with all the terrors of the law, and was only prevented from taking extreme steps by the advice of the professional man. "'You cannot get blood from a stone,' observed the lawyer. And Morris saw the point, and came to terms with his uncle.' On the one side, Joseph gave up all that he possessed, and assigned to his nephew his contingent interest in the tontine—already quite a hopeful speculation. On the other, Morris agreed to harbour his uncle and Miss Hazeltine, who had come to grief with the rest, and to pay to each of them one pound a month as pocket-money. The allowance was amply sufficient for the old man. It scarce appears how Miss Hazeltine contrived to dress upon it, but she did, and what is more she never complained." She was, indeed, sincerely attached to her incompetent guardian. He had never been unkind. His age spoke for him loudly. There was something appealing in his whole-souled quest of knowledge, an innocent delight in the smallest mark of admiration, and though the lawyer had warned her she was being sacrificed, Julia had refused to add to the perplexities of Uncle Joseph. In a large, dreary house in John Street, Bloomsbury, these four dwelt together— a family in appearance, in reality a financial association. Julia and Uncle Joseph were, of course, slaves. John, a gentleman with a taste for the banjo, the music-hall, the gaiety-bar, and the sporting-papers, must have been anywhere a secondary figure. And the cares and delights of empire devolved entirely upon Morris. That these are inextricably intermixed is one of the commonplaces with which the bland essayist consoles the incompetent and the obscure but in the case of Morris, the bitter must have largely outweighed the sweet. He grudged no trouble to himself. He spared none to others. He called the servants in the morning. He served out the stores with his own hand. He took soundings of the sherry. He numbered the remainder biscuits. Painful scenes took place over the weekly bills, and the cook was frequently impeached, and the tradespeople came and hectored with him in the back parlour upon a question of three farthings. The superficial might have deemed him a miser. In his own eyes, he was simply a man who had been defrauded. The world owed him seven thousand eight hundred pounds, and he intended that the world should pay. But it was in his dealings with Joseph that Morris's character particularly shone. His uncle was a rather gambling stock in which he had invested heavily, and he spared no pains in nursing the security. The old man was seen monthly by a physician, whether he was well or ill. His diet, his raiment, his occasional outings, now to Brighton, now to Bournemouth, were doled out to him like pap to infants. In bad weather he must keep the house. In good weather, by half-past nine, he must be ready in the hall. Morris would see that he had gloves, and that his shoes were sound, and the pair would start for the leather business, arm in arm." The way there was probably dreary enough, for there was no pretence of friendly feeling. Morris had never ceased to upbraid his guardian with his defalcation, and to lament the burden of Miss Hazeltine. And Joseph, though he was a mild enough soul, regarded his nephew with something very near akin to hatred. But the way there was nothing to the journey back, for the mere sight of the place of business, as well as every detail of its transactions, was enough to poison life for any Finsbury. Joseph's name was still over the door. It was he who still signed the cheques, but this was only policy on the part of Morris, and designed to discourage other members of the Tontine. In reality, the business was entirely his, and he found it an inheritance of sorrows. He tried to sell it, and the offers he received were quite derisory. He tried to extend it, and it was only the liabilities he succeeded in extending. To restrict it, and it was only the profits he managed to restrict. Nobody had ever made money out of that concern, except the capable Scott, who retired, after his discharge, to the neighbourhood of Banff, and built a castle with his profits. The memory of this fallacious Caledonian Morris would revile daily, as he sat in the private office, opening his mail, with old Joseph at another table, sullenly awaiting orders, or savagely affixing signatures to he knew not what and when the man of the heather pushed cynicism so far as to send him the announcement of his second marriage to d'vidia elder daughter of the reverend alexander macraw it was really supposed that morris would have a fit business hours in the finsbury leather trade had been cut to the quick even morris's strong sense of duty to himself was not strong enough to dally within those walls and under the shadow of that bankruptcy and presently the manager and clocks would draw a long breath and compose themselves for another day of procrastination. Raw haste, on the authority of my lord Tennyson, is half-sister to delay, but the business habits are certainly her uncle's. Meanwhile the leather merchant would lead his living investment back to John Street like a puppy-dog, and having there immured him in the hall, would depart for the day on the quest of seal-rings, the only passion of his life. Joseph had more than the vanity of man, he had that of lecturers. He owned he was in fault, although more sinned against, by the capable Scot, than sinning, but had he steeped his hands in gore, he would still not deserve to be thus dragged at the chariot-wheels of a young man. To sit a captive in the halls of his own leather business, to be entertained with mortifying comments on his whole career, to have his costume examined, his collar pulled up, the presence of his mittens verified— and to be taken out and brought home in custody, like an infant with a nurse. At the thought of it his soul would swell with venom, and he would make haste to hang up his hat and coat, and the detested mittens, and slink upstairs to Julia and his notebooks. The drawing-room at least was sacred from Morris. It belonged to the old man and to the young girl. It was there that she made her dresses. It was there that he inked his spectacles over the registration of disconnected facts and the calculation of insignificant statistics. Here he would sometimes lament his connection with the tontine. "'If it were not for that,' he cried one afternoon, "'he would not care to keep me. I might be a free man, Julia, and I could so easily support myself by giving lectures.' "'To be sure you could,' said she. "'And I think it one of the meanest things he ever did to deprive you of that amusement.' were those nice people at the Isle of Cats, wasn't it, who wrote and asked you so very kindly to give them an address? I did think he might have let you go to the Isle of Cats.' "'He is a man of no intelligence,' cried Joseph. "'He lives here literally surrounded by the absorbing spectacle of life, and for all the good it does him he might just as well be in his coffin. Think of his opportunities. The heart of any other young man would burn within him at the chance.' The amount of information that I have it in my power to convey, if he would only listen, is a thing that beggars language, Julia. Whatever you do, my dear, you mustn't excite yourself, said Julia. For you know, if you look at all ill, the doctor will be sent for. That is very true, returned the old man humbly. I will compose myself with a little study. He thumbed his gallery of notebooks. I wonder, he said, i wonder since i see that your hands are occupied whether it might not interest you why of course it would cried julia read me one of your nice stories there's a dear he had the volume down and his spectacles on his nose in as though to forestall some possible retraction what i propose to read to you said he skimming through the pages is the notes of a highly important conversation with a dutch courier of the name of david Abbas which is the Latin for Abbot. Its results are so well worth the money it cost me. For, as Abbas at first appeared somewhat impatient, I was induced to, what I believe singularly called, stand him drink. It runs only to about five and twenty pages. Yes, here it is. He cleared his throat, and began to read. Mr. Finsbury, according to his own report— contributed about four hundred and ninety-nine five-hundredths of the interview, and elicited from Abbas literally nothing. It was dull for Julia, who did not require to listen. For the Dutch courier, who had to answer, it must have been a perfect nightmare. It would seem as if he had consoled himself by frequent appliances to the bottle. It would even seem that, towards the end, he had ceased to depend on Joseph's frugal generosity, and called for the flagon on his own account.' The effect, at least, of some mellowing influence, was visible in the record. Abbas became suddenly a willing witness. He began to volunteer disclosures, and Julia had just looked up from her scene with something like a smile, when Morris burst into the house, eagerly calling for his uncle, and the next instant plunged into the room, waving in the air the evening paper. It was indeed with great news that he came charged. The demise was announced of Lieutenant-General Sir Glasgow Biggar. KCSI, KCMG, etc. And the prize of the Tontine now lay between the Finsbury brothers. Here was Morris's opportunity at last. The brothers had never, it is true, been cordial. When word came that Joseph was in Asia Minor, Masterman had expressed himself with irritation. I call it simply indecent, he had said. Mark my words, we shall hear of him next at the North Pole and these bitter expressions had been reported to the traveller on his return. What was worse, Masterman had refused to attend the lecture on education, its aims, objects, purposes, and desirability, although invited to the platform. Since then the brothers had not met. On the other hand, they never had openly quarrelled. Joseph, by Morris's orders, was prepared to waive the advantage of his juniority. Masterman had enjoyed all through life— the reputation of a man neither greedy nor unfair. Here, then, were all the elements of compromise assembled, and Morris, suddenly beholding his seven thousand eight hundred pounds restored to him, and himself dismissed from the vicissitudes of the leather trade, hastened the next morning to the office of his cousin Michael. Michael was something of a public character. Launched upon the law at a very early age, and quite without protectors, He had become a trafficker in shady affairs. He was known to be the man for a lost cause. It was known that he could extract testimony from a stone, an interest from a gold-mine, and his office was besieged in consequence by all that numerous class of persons who have still some reputation to lose and find themselves upon the point of losing it, by those who have made undesirable acquaintances, who have mislaid a compromising correspondence, or who are being blackmailed by their own butlers in private life michael was a man of pleasure but it was thought his dire experience at the office had gone far to sober him and it was known that in the matter of investments he preferred the solid to the brilliant what was yet more to the purpose he had been all his life a consistent scoffer at the finsbury tontine it was therefore with little fear for the result that morris presented himself before his cousin and proceeded feverishly to set forth his scheme. For near upon a quarter of an hour the lawyer suffered him to dwell upon its manifest advantages uninterrupted. Then Michael rose from his seat, and, ringing for his clerk, uttered a single clause. "'It won't do, Morris!' It was in vain that the leather merchant pleaded and reasoned, and returned day after day to plead and reason. It was in vain that he offered a bonus of one thousand— Of two thousand of three thousand pounds in vain that he offered in joseph's name to be content with only one-third of the pool still there came the same answer it won't do i can't see the bottom of this he said at last you answer none of my arguments you haven't a word to say for my part i believe it's malice the lawyer smiled at him benignly you may believe one thing said he, "'Whatever else I do, I am not going to gratify any of your curiosity. You see, I am a trifle more communicative to-day, because this is our last interview upon the subject.' "'Our last interview?' cried Morris. "'The stirrup-cup, dear boy,' returned Michael. "'I can't have my business-hours encroached upon. And, by the by, have you no business of your own? Are there no convulsions in the leather trade?' "'I believe it to be malice," repeated Morris, doggedly. "'You always hated and despised me from a boy.' "'No, no, not hated,' returned Michael soothingly. "'I rather like you than otherwise. There's such a permanent surprise about you. You look so dark and attractive from a distance. Do you know that to the naked eye you look romantic, like what they call a man with a history?' "'And, indeed, from all that I can hear, the history of the leather trade is full of incident.' "'Yes,' said Morris, disregarding these remarks. "'It's no use coming here. I shall see your father.' "'Oh, no, you won't,' said Michael. "'Nobody shall see my father.' "'I should like to know why,' cried his cousin. "'I never make any secret of that,' replied the lawyer. "'He is too ill.' "'If he is as ill as you say,' cried the other, "'the more reason for accepting my proposal. "'I will see him.' "'Will you?' said Michael, and he rose and rang for his clerk. "'It was now time, according to Sir Faraday Bond, "'the medical baronet, whose name is so familiar at the foot of bulletins, "'that Joseph, the poor golden goose, "'should be removed into the purer air of Bournemouth, "'and for that uncharted wilderness of villas "'the family now shook off the dust of Bloomsbury.' Julia delighted, because at Bournemouth she sometimes made acquaintances. John in despair, for he was a man of city tastes. Joseph, indifferent where he was, so long as there was pen and ink and daily papers, and he could avoid martyrdom at the office. Morris himself, perhaps not displeased to pretermit these visits to the city, and have a quiet time for thought. He was prepared for any sacrifice. All he desired was to get his money again, and clear his feet of leather. And it would be strange, since he was so modest in his desires, and the pool amounted to upwards of a hundred and sixteen thousand pounds, it would be strange indeed if he could find no way of influencing Michael. "'If I could only guess his reason,' he repeated to himself, and by day as he walked in Branksome Woods, and by night as he turned upon his bed— "'and at meal-times when he forgot to eat, "'and in the bathing-machine when he forgot to dress himself. "'That problem was constantly before him. "'Why had Michael refused?' "'At last, one night he burst into his brother's room and woke him. "'What's all this?' asked John. "'Julia leaves this place to-morrow,' replied Morris. "'She must go up to town and get the house ready, and find servants.' "'We shall all follow in three days.' "'Oh, bravo!' cried John. Uh, "'But why?' "'I've found it out, John,' returned his brother, gently. "'It? What?' inquired John. "'Why Michael won't compromise?' said Morris. "'It's because he can't. "'It's because Masterman's dead, and he's keeping it dark.' "'Golly!' cried the impressionable John. "'But what's the use?' "'Why does he do it, anyway?' "'To defraud us of the tontine,' said his brother. "'He couldn't. "'You have to have a doctor's certificate,' objected John. "'Did you never hear of venal doctors?' inquired Morris. "'They're as common as blackberries. "'You can pick them up for three-pound-ten a head.' "'I wouldn't do it under fifty if I were a sawbones," bones,' ejaculated John. "'And then Michael?' continued morris is in the very thick of it all his clients have come to grief his whole business is rotten eggs if any man could arrange it he could and depend upon it he has his plan all straight and depend upon it it's a good one for he's clever and be done to him but i'm clever too and i'm desperate i lost seven thousand eight hundred pounds when i was an orphan at school oh don't be tedious interrupted john You've lost far more already, trying to get it back. End of chapter one Chapter two of The Wrong Box This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox. Dot .org reading by Andy the wrong box by robert louis stevenson and lloyd osborne chapter 2 in which morris takes action some days later accordingly the three males of this depressing family might have been observed by a reader of gpr james taking their departure from the east station of bournemouth The weather was raw and changeable, and Joseph was arrayed in consequence according to the principles of Sir Faraday Bond, a man no less strict, as is well known, on costume than on diet. There are few polite invalids who have not lived, or tried to live, by that punctilious physician's orders. Avoid tea, madam, the reader has doubtless heard him say. Avoid tea, fried liver, antimonial wine, and baker's bread. "'Retire nightly at ten forty-five, "'and close yourself, if you please, "'throw out in hygienic flannel. "'Externally, the fur of the marten is indicated. "'Do not forget to procure a pair of health-boots "'at Mrs. Dale and and "'He has probably called you back, "'even after you have paid your fee, "'to add, with stentorian emphasis, "'I had forgotten one caution. "'Avoid kippered sturgeon as you would the very devil.' The unfortunate Joseph was cut to the pattern of Sir Faraday in every button. He was shod with the health-boot, his suit was of genuine ventilating cloth, his shirt of hygienic flannel, a somewhat dingy fabric, and he was draped to the knees in the inevitable greatcoat of Martin's fur. The very railway porters at Bournemouth, which was a favourite station of the doctors, marked the old gentleman for a creature of Sir Faraday there was but one evidence of personal taste—a visited forage-cap. From this form of headpiece, since he had fled from a dying jackal on the plains of Ephesus, and weathered a borer in the Adriatic, nothing could divorce our traveller. The three Finsburys mounted into their compartment, and fell immediately to quarrelling, a step unseemly in itself, and, in this case, highly unfortunate for Morris. Had he lingered a moment longer by the window— this tale need never have been written, for he might then have observed, as the porters did not fail to do, the arrival of a second passenger in the uniform of Sir Faraday Bond. But he had other matters on hand which he judged, God knows how erroneously, to be more important. Oh, never heard of such a thing,' he cried, resuming a discussion which had scarcely ceased all morning. "'The bill is not yours. It's mine.' "'It is payable to me,' returned the old gentleman, with an air of bitter obstinacy. "'I will do what I please with my own property.' The bill was one for eight hundred pounds, which had been given him at breakfast to endorse, and which he had simply pocketed. "'Hear him, Johnny,' cried Morris. "'His property. The very clothes upon his back belong to me. Let him alone,' said John. "'I am sick of both of you.' "'That is no way to speak of your uncle, sir. I will not endure this disrespect. You are a pair of exceedingly forward, impudent, and ignorant young men, and I have quite made up my mind to put an end to the whole business.' "'Oh, Skittles!' said the graceful John. But Morris was not so easy in his mind.' this unusual act of insubordination had already troubled him and these mutinous words now sounded ominously in his ears he looked at the old gentleman uneasily upon one occasion many years before when joseph was delivering a lecture the audience had revolted in a body finding their entertainer somewhat dry they had taken the question of amusement into their own hands and the lecturer along with the board schoolmaster the baptist clergyman and a working man's candidate who made up his bodyguard was ultimately driven from the scene morris had not been present on that fatal day if he had he would have recognised a certain fighting glitter in his uncle's eye and a certain chewing movement of his lips as old acquaintances "'but even to the inexpert these symptoms breathed of something dangerous.' "'Well, well,' said Morris, "'I've no wish to bother you further till we get to London.' Joseph did not so much as look at him in answer. With tremulous hands he produced a copy of The British Mechanic, and ostentatiously buried himself in its perusal. "'I wonder what can make him so cantankerous,' reflected the nephew. "'I don't like the look of it at all.' and he dubiously scratched his nose. The train travelled forth into the world, bearing along with it the customary freight of obliterated voyagers, and along with these old Joseph, affecting immersion in his paper, and John, slumbering over the columns of the pinken, and Morris, revolving in his mind a dozen grudges and suspicions and alarms. It passed Christchurch by the sea, Hearn with its pine woods, Ringwood on its mazy river, A little behind time, but not much for the south-western, it drew up at the platform of a station in the midst of the new forest, the real name of which, in case the railway company might have the law of me, I shall veil under the alias of Browndean. Many passengers put their heads to the window, and among the rest an old gentleman, on whom I willingly dwell, for I am nearly done with him now, and, in the whole course of the present narrative, I am not in the least likely to meet another character so decent. His name is immaterial, not so his habits. He had passed his life wandering in a tweed suit on the continent of Europe, and years of Galignani's messenger having at length undermined his eyesight, he suddenly remembered the rivers of Assyria and came to London to consult an oculist. From the oculist to the dentist, and from both to the physician, the step appears inevitable. Presently, he was in the hands of Sir Faraday, robed in ventilating cloth, and sent to Bournemouth, and to that domineering baronet, who was his only friend upon his native soil, he was now returning to report. The case of these tweed-suited wanderers is unique. We have all seen them entering the table d'hote at Spezia, or Graz, or Venice, with a genteel melancholy, and a faint appearance of having been to India, and not succeeded— in the offices of many hundred hotels they are known by name, and yet, if the whole of this wandering cohort were to disappear to-morrow, their absence would be wholly unremarked. How much more if only one, say, this one, in the ventilating cloth, should vanish? He had paid his bills at Bournemouth, his worldly effects were all in the van in two portmanteaux, and these, after the proper interval, would be sold as unclaimed baggage to a Jew.' Sir Faraday's butler would be a half-crown poorer at the year's end, and the hotel-keepers of Europe, at about the same date, would be mourning a small but quite observable decline in profits, and that would be literally all. Perhaps the old gentleman thought something of the sort, for he looked melancholy enough, as he pulled his bare grey head back into the carriage— and the train smoked under the bridge, and forth, with ever-quickening speed, across the mingled heaths and woods of the New Forest. Not many hundred yards beyond Browndean, however, a sudden jarring of brakes set everybody's teeth on edge, and there was a brutal stoppage. Morris Finsbury was aware of a confused uproar of voices, and sprang to the window. Women were screaming, men were tumbling from the windows on the track, the guard was crying to them to stay where they were, At the same time the train began to gather way and move very slowly backwards towards Browndean, and the next moment all these various sounds were blotted out in the apocalyptic whistle and thundering onslaught of the Down Express. The actual collision Morris did not hear. Perhaps he fainted. He had a wild dream of having seen the carriage double up and fall to pieces like a pantomime trick, and sure enough, when he came to himself— He was lying on the bare earth and under the open sky. His head ached savagely. He carried his hand to his brow, and was not surprised to see it red with blood. The air was filled with an intolerable throbbing roar, which he expected to find die away with the return of consciousness, and instead of that it seemed but to swell the louder, and to pierce the more cruelly through his ears. It was a raging, bellowing thunder, like a boiler riveting factory." and now curiosity began to stir and he sat up and looked about him the track at this point ran in a sharp curve about a wooded hillock all of the near side was heaped with the wreckage of the bournemouth train that of the express was mostly hidden by the trees and just at the turn under clouds of vomiting steam and piled about with cairns of living coal lay what remained of the two engines one upon the other On the heathy margin of the line were many people running to and fro, and crying aloud as they ran, and many others lying motionless, like sleeping tramps. Morris suddenly drew an inference. "'There has been an accident,' thought he, and was elated at his perspicacity. Almost at the same time his eye lighted on John, who lay close by as white as paper. "'Poor old John! Poor old Cove!' he thought. schoolboy expression popping forth from some forgotten treasury, and he took his brother's hand in his with childish tenderness. It was perhaps the touch that recalled him. At least John opened his eyes, sat suddenly up, and, after several ineffectual movements of his lips— "'What's the row?' said he, in a phantom voice. The din of that devil's smithy still thundered in their ears. "'Let us get away from that,' Morris cried and pointed at a vomit of steam that still spouted from the broken engines. And the pair helped each other up, and stood, and quaked, and wavered, and stared about them at the scene of death. Just then they were approached by a party of men, who had already organised themselves for the purpose of rescue. "'Are you hurt?' cried one of these, a young fellow, with the sweat streaming down his pallid face, and who, by the way he was treated, was evidently the doctor. Morris shook his head and the young man, nodding grimly, handed him a bottle of some spirit. "'Take a drink of that,' he said. "'Your friend looks as if he needed it badly. We want every man we can get,' he added. "'There's terrible work before us, and nobody should shirk. If you can do no more, you can carry a stretcher.' The doctor was hardly gone before Morris, under the spur of the dram, awoke to the full possession of his wits. "'My God!' he cried. "'Uncle Joseph!' yes said john where can he be he can't be far off i hope the old party isn't damaged come and help me look said morris with a snap of savage determination strangely foreign to his ordinary bearing and then for one moment he broke forth if he's dead he cried and shook his fist at heaven to and fro the brothers hurried staring in the face of the wounded or turning the dead upon their backs they must have thus examined forty people and still there was no word of uncle joseph but now the course of their search had brought them near the centre of the collision where the boilers were still blowing off steam with a deafening clamour it was a part of the field not yet gleaned by the rescuing party the ground especially on the margin of the wood was full of inequalities here a pit there a hillock surmounted with a bush of firs it was a place where many bodies might lie concealed and they beat it like pointers after game suddenly morris who was leading paused and reached forth his index with a tragic gesture john followed the direction of his brother's hand in the bottom of a sandy hole lay something that had once been human the face had suffered severely and it was unrecognisable but that was not required the snowy hair the coat of martin the ventilating cloth the hygienic flannel everything down to the health boots from Mrs. Dale and Crumbies, identified the body as that of Uncle Joseph. Only the forage cap must have been lost in the convulsion, for the dead man was bareheaded. "'The poor old beggar,' said John, with a touch of natural feeling, "'I would give ten pounds if we hadn't chivvied him in the train.' But there was no sentiment in the face of Morris as he gazed upon the dead, gnawing his nails with introverted eyes." his brow marked with the stamp of tragic indignation and tragic intellectual effort, he stood there silent. Here was a last injustice. He had been robbed while he was an orphan at school, he had been lashed to a decadent leather business, he had been saddled with Miss Hazeltine, his cousin had been defrauding him of the tontine, and he had borne all this, you might almost say, with dignity. And now they had gone and killed his uncle. "'Eh!—' "'he said suddenly. "'Take his heels. "'We must get him into the woods. "'I'm not going to have anybody find this.' "'Oh, fudge!' said John. "'Where's the use?' "'Do what I tell you,' spurted Morris, "'as he took the corpse by the shoulders. And I were to carry him myself?' "'They were close upon the borders of the wood. "'In ten or twelve paces they were under cover, "'and a little further back, "'in a sandy clearing of the trees, "'they laid their burden down.' and stood and looked at it with loathing what do you mean to do whispered john bury him to be sure responded morris and he opened his pocket-knife and began feverishly to dig you'll never make a hand of it with that objected the other if you won't help me you cowardly shirk screamed morris you can go to the devil it's the childishest folly said john but no man shall call me a coward and he began to help his brother grudgingly. The soil was sandy and light, but matted with the roots of the surrounding firs. Gorse tore their hands, and as they baled the sand from the grave, it was often discoloured with their blood. An hour passed of unremitting energy on the part of Morris, of lukewarm help on that of John, and still the trench was barely nine inches in depth. Into this the body was rudely flung, Sand was piled upon it, and then more sand must be dug, and gorse had to be cut to pile upon that, and still from one end of the sordid mound a pair of feet projected, and caught the light upon their patent-leather toes. But by this time the nerves of both were shaken. Even Morris had enough of his grisly task, and they skulked off like animals into the thickest of the neighbouring covert. "'It's the best we can do,' said Morris, sitting down. "'And now—' said john perhaps you'll have the politeness to tell me what it's all about upon my word cried morris if you do not understand for yourself i almost despair of telling you oh of course it's some rot about the tontine returned the other but it's the merest nonsense we've lost it there's an end i tell you said morris uncle masterman is dead i know it there's a voice that tells me so Well. "'And so is Uncle Joseph,' said John. "'He's not dead unless I choose,' returned Morris. "'And come to that,' cried John, "'if you're right, and Uncle Masterman's been dead ever so long, "'all we have to do is to tell the truth and expose Michael.' "'You seem to think Michael is a fool,' sneered Morris. "'Can't you understand? He's been preparing this fraud for years. "'He has the whole thing ready.' THE NURSE, THE DOCTOR, THE UNDERTAKER, ALL BOUGHT, THE CERTIFICATE ALREADY, BUT THE DATE. LET HIM GET WIND OF THIS BUSINESS, AND YOU MARK MY WORDS, UNCLE MASTERMAN WILL DIE IN TWO DAYS, AND BE BURIED IN A WEEK. BUT SEE HERE, JOHNNY, WHAT MICHAEL CAN DO, I CAN DO. IF HE PLAYS A GAME OF BLUFFS, SO CAN I. IF HIS FATHER IS TO LIVE FOREVER, BY GOD, SO SHALL MY UNCLE.' "'It's legal, ain't it?' said John a man must have some moral courage replied morris with dignity and then suppose you're wrong Suppose uncle masterman's alive and kicking well even then responded the plotter we're no worse off than we were before in fact we're better uncle masterman must die some day as long as uncle joseph was alive he might have died any day but we're out of all that trouble now there's no sort of limit to the game that i propose "'It can be kept up till kingdom come.' "'If I could only see how you meant to set about it,' sighed John. "'But you know, Morris, you always were such a bungler.' "'I'd like to know what I ever bungled,' cried Morris. "'I have the best collection of signet rings in London.' "'Well, you know, there's the leather business,' suggested the other. "'That's considered rather a hash.' It was a mark of singular self-control in Morris that he suffered this to pass unchallenged, "'and even unresented. "'About the business in hand,' said he, "'once we get him up to Bloomsbury, there's no sort of trouble. "'We bury him in the cellar, which seems made for it, "'and then all I have to do is to start out and find a venal doctor.' "'Why can't we leave him where he is?' asked John. "'Because we know nothing about the country,' retorted Morris. "'This wood may be a regular lover's walk. "'Turn your mind to the real difficulty.' how are we going to get him up to bloomsbury various schemes were mooted and rejected the railway station at browndean was of course out of the question for it would now be a centre of curiosity and gossip and of all things they would be least able to dispatch a dead body without remark john feebly proposed getting an ale cask and sending it as beer but the objections to this course were so overwhelming that morris scorned to answer the purchase of a packing case seemed equally hopeless "'for why should two gentlemen, without baggage of any kind, require a packing-case? "'They would be more likely to require clean linen.' "'We are working on the wrong lines,' cried Morris at last. "'The thing must be gone about more carefully.' "'Suppose now,' he added excitedly, speaking by fits and starts, as if he were thinking aloud, "'suppose we rent a cottage by the month. "'A householder can buy a packing-case without remark. "'Then suppose we clear the people out to-day?' get the packing-case to-night and to-morrow i hire a carriage or a cart we could drive ourselves and take the box or whatever we get to rigwood or Blindhurst or somewhere we could label it specimens don't you see johnny i believe i've hit the nail at last well it sounds more feasible admitted john of course we must take assumed names continued morris "'It will never do to keep our own. "'What do you say to Masterman itself?' "'It sounds quiet and dignified.' "'I will not take the name of Masterman,' returned his brother. "'You may, if you like. "'I shall call myself Vance, the great Vance, positively the last six nights. "'There's some go in a name like that.' "'Vance!' cried Morris. "'Do you think we are playing pantomime for our amusement?' "'There was never anybody named Vance who wasn't a music-hall singer.' "'That's the beauty of it,' returned John. "'It gives you some standing at once. "'You may call yourself Fortescue till all's blue and nobody cares, "'but to be Vance gives a man a natural nobility.' "'But there's lots of other theatrical names— Laybourne, Irving, Bruff, Tool—' "'Devil of one will I take,' returned his brother. "'I'm going to have my little lark out of this as well as you.' "'Very well,' said Morris, who perceived that John was determined to carry his point. "'I shall be Robert Vance.' "'And I shall be George Vance,' cried John. "'The only original George Vance. Rally round the only original!' Repairing as well as they were able the disorder of their clothes, the Finsbury brothers returned to Browndean by a circuitous route in quest of luncheon and a suitable cottage. It is not always easy to drop at a moment's notice on a furnished residence in a retired locality, but Fortune presently introduced our adventurers to a deaf carpenter, a man rich in cottages of the required description, and unaffectedly eager to supply their wants. The second place they visited, standing as it did about a mile and a half from any neighbours, caused them to exchange a glance of hope. On a nearer view, the place was not without depressing features— It stood in a marshy-looking hollow of a heath, tall trees obscured its windows, the thatch visibly rotted on the rafters, and the walls were stained with splashes of an unwholesome green. The rooms were small, the ceilings low, the furniture merely nominal. A strange chill and a haunting smell of damp pervaded the kitchen, and the bedroom boasted only of one bed. Morris, with a view to cheapening the place, remarked on this defect. "'Well,' returned the man, "'if you can't sleep to a bed, you'd better take a villa residence.' "'And then,' pursued Morris, "'there's no water. How'd you get your water?' "'We've filled the hat from the spring,' replied the carpenter, pointing to a big barrel that stood beside the door. "'The spring ain't so very far off, after all, and it's easy brought in buckets. There's a bucket there.' Morris nudged his brother as they examined the water-butt it was new and very solidly constructed for its office if anything had been wanting to decide them this eminently practical barrel would have turned the scale a bargain was promptly struck the month's rent was paid upon the nail and about an hour later the finsbury brothers might have been observed returning to the blighted cottage having along with them the key which was the symbol of their tenancy a spirit-lamp with which they fondly told themselves they would be able to cook a pork-pie of suitable dimensions, and a quart of the worst whisky in Hampshire. Nor was this all they had effected. Already, under the plea that they were landscape painters, they had hired for dawn on the morrow a light but solid two-wheeled cart, so that when they entered in their new character they were able to tell themselves that the back of the business was already broken. John proceeded to get tea, while Morris, foraging about the house, was presently delighted by discovering the lid of the water-butt upon the kitchen shelf. Here, then, was the packing-case complete. With the absence of straw, the blankets, which he himself at least had not the smallest intention of using for their present purpose, would exactly take the place of packing, and Morris, as the difficulties began to vanish from his bath, rose almost to the brink of exultation. There was, however, one difficulty not yet faced, one upon which his whole scheme depended. Would John consent to remain alone in the cottage? He had not yet dared to put the question. It was with high good humour that the pair sat down to the deal table and proceeded to fall to on the pork pie. Morris retailed the discovery of the lid, and the great vance was pleased to applaud by beating on the table with his fork in true music-hall style. That's the dodge, he cried. I always said a water-butt was what you wanted for this business. Of course, said Morris. "'thinking this a favourable opportunity to prepare his brother. "'Of course you must stay on in this place till I give the word. "'I'll give out that Uncle is resting in the new forest. "'It would not do for both of us to appear in London. "'We could never conceal the absence of the old man.' "'John's jaw dropped. "'Oh, come!' he cried. "'You can stay in this hole yourself. I won't.' "'The colour came into Morris's cheeks. "'He saw that he must win his brother at any cost.' you must please remember johnny he said the amount of the tontine if i succeed we shall have each fifty thousand to place to our bank account ah and nearer sixty but if you fail returned john what then what will be the colour of our bank account in that case i will pay all expenses said morris with an inward struggle you shall lose nothing Well said John, with a laugh. "'If the exes are yours, and half-profit's mine, I don't mind remaining here for a couple of days.' "'A couple of days?' cried Morris, who was beginning to get angry, and controlled himself with difficulty. "Why, "'You'd do more to win five pounds in a horse-race.' "'Perhaps I would,' returned the great Vance. "'It's the artistic temperament.' "'This is monstrous,' burst out Morris i take all the risks i pay all expenses i divide profits and you won't take the slightest pains to help me it's not decent it's not honest it's not even kind but suppose objected john who was considerably impressed by his brother's vehemence suppose that uncle masterman is alive after all and lives ten years longer must i rot here all that time of course not responded morris in a more conciliatory tone i only ask a month at the outside and if uncle masterman's not dead by that time you can go abroad go abroad repeated john eagerly why shouldn't i go at once tell him that joseph and i are seeing life in paris nonsense said morris well but, but look here said john "'This house, it's such a pigsty, it's so dreary and damp. "'You said yourself that it was damp?' "'Only to the carpenter,' Morris distinguished, "'and that was to reduce the rent. "'But really, you know, now we're in it, I've seen worse.' "'And what am I to do?' complained the victim. "'How can I entertain a friend?' "'My dear Johnny, if you don't think the tontine worth a little trouble, "'say so, and I'll give the business up.' you're dead certain of the figures i suppose asked john well send me the pinken and all the comic papers regularly i'll face the music as afternoon drew on the cottage breathed more thrillingly of its native marsh a creeping chill inhabited its chambers the fire smoked and a shower of rain coming up from the channel on a slant of wind tingled on the window-panes At intervals, when the gloom deepened towards despair, Morris would produce the whisky-bottle, and at first John welcomed the diversion. Not for long. It has been said that this spirit was the worst in Hampshire. Only those acquainted with the county can appreciate the force of that superlative. And at length even the great Vance, who was no connoisseur, waved the decoction from his lips. The approach of dusk, feebly combated with a single tallow candle, added a touch of tragedy, and John suddenly stopped whistling through his fingers, an art to the practice of which he had been reduced, and bitterly lamented his concessions. "'I can't stay here a month!' he cried. "'No one could. The thing's nonsense, Morris. The parties that lived in the Bastille would rise against a place like this!' With admirable affectation of indifference, Morris proposed a game of pitch-and-toss, TO WHAT WILL NOT THE DIPLOMATIST CONDESCEND? IT WAS JOHN'S FAVORITE GAME, INDEED HIS ONLY GAME. HE HAD FOUND ALL THE REST TOO INTELLECTUAL. AND HE PLAYED IT WITH EQUAL SKILL AND GOOD FORTUNE. TO MORRIS HIMSELF, ON THE OTHER HAND, THE WHOLE BUSINESS WAS DETESTABLE. HE WAS A BAD PITCHER, HE HAD NO LUCK IN TOSSING, AND HE WAS ONE WHO SUFFERED TORMENTS WHEN HE LOST. BUT JOHN WAS IN A DANGEROUS HUMOR, AND HIS BROTHER WAS PREPARED FOR ANY SACRIFICE. By seven o'clock, Morris, with incredible agony, had lost a couple of half-crowns. Even with the tontine before his eyes, this was as much as he could bear, and remarking that he would take his revenge some other time, he proposed a bit of supper and a grog. Before they had made an end of this refreshment, it was time to be at work. A bucket of water, for present necessities, was withdrawn from the water-butt, which was then emptied, and rolled before the kitchen fire to dry, AND THE TWO BROTHERS SET FORTH ON THEIR ADVENTURE UNDER A STARLESS HEAVEN. END OF CHAPTER TWO CHAPTER THREE OF THE WRONG BOX THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter The Wrong Box by Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne CHAPTER Three: THE LECTURER AT LARGE Whether mankind is really partial to happiness is an open question, Not a month passes by, but some cherished son runs off into the merchant service, or some valued husband decamps to Texas with a lady help, clergymen have fled from their parishioners, and even judges have been known to retire. To an open mind it will appear, upon the whole, less strange that Joseph Finsbury should have been led to entertain ideas of escape. His lot, I think we may say, was not a happy one. "'My friend, Mr. Morris, with whom I travel up twice or thrice a week from Snaresbrook Park, is certainly a gentleman whom I esteem, but he was scarce a model nephew. As for John, he is, of course, an excellent fellow, but if he was the only link that bound one to a home, I think the most of us would vote for foreign travel. In the case of Joseph, John, if he were a link at all, was not the only one. Endearing bonds had long enchained the old gentleman to Bloomsbury.' By these expressions I do not in the least refer to Julia Hazeltine, of whom, however, he was fond enough, but to that collection of manuscript note-books in which his life lay buried. That he should ever have made up his mind to separate himself from these collections, and go forth upon the world with no other resources than his memory supplied, is a circumstance highly pathetic in itself, and but little creditable to the wisdom of his nephews." The design, or at least the temptation, was already some months old, and when a bill for eight hundred pounds, payable to himself, was suddenly placed in Joseph's hand, it brought matters to an issue. He retained that bill, which, to one of his frugality, meant wealth, and he promised himself to disappear among the crowds at Waterloo, or, if that should prove impossible, to slink out of the house in the course of the evening, and melt like a dream into the millions of London.' by a peculiar interposition of providence and railway mismanagement he had not so long to wait he was one of the first to come to himself and scramble to his feet after the Browndean catastrophe and he had no sooner remarked his prostrate nephews than he understood his opportunity and fled a man upwards of seventy who has just met with a railway accident and who is cumbered besides with the full uniform of sir faraday bond is not very likely to flee far but the wood was close at hand, and offered the fugitive at least a temporary cover. Hither then the old gentleman skipped with extraordinary expedition, and being somewhat winded and a good deal shaken, here he lay down in a convenient grove, and was presently overwhelmed by slumber. The way of fate is often highly entertaining to the looker-on, and it is certainly a pleasant circumstance that while Morris and John were delving in the sand to conceal the body of a total stranger, their uncle lay in dreamless sleep a few hundred yards deeper in the wood. He was awakened by the jolly note of a bugle from the neighbouring high-road, where a charabang was bowling by with some belated tourists. The sound cheered his old heart, it directed his steps into the bargain, and soon he was on the highway, looking east and west from under his visor, and doubtfully revolving what he ought to do. A deliberate sound of wheels arose in the distance, and then a cart was seen approaching, well filled with parcels, driven by a good-natured-looking man on a double bench, and displaying on a board the legend, I, Chandler, Carrier. In the infamously prosaic mind of Mr. Finsbury, certain streaks of poetry survived, and were still efficient. They had carried him to Asia Minor as a giddy youth of forty, and now, in the first hours of his recovered freedom, they suggested to him the idea of continuing his flight in Mr. Chandler's cart. It would be cheap, properly broached, might even cost nothing, and after years of mittens and hygienic flannel his heart leapt out to meet the notion of exposure. Mr. Chandler was perhaps a little puzzled to find so old a gentleman so strangely clothed, and begging for a lift on so retired a roadside. But he was a good-natured man, glad to do a service— and so he took the stranger up, and he had his own ideas of civility, and so he asked no questions. Silence, in fact, was quite good enough for Mr. Chandler, but the cart had scarcely begun to move forward ere he found himself involved in a one-sided conversation. "'I can see,' began Mr. Finsbury, "'by the mixture of parcels and boxes that are contained in your cart, each marked with its individual label.' and by the good flemish mare you drive that you occupy the post of carrier in that great english system of transport which with all its defects is the pride of our country yes sir returned mr chandler vaguely for he hardly knew what to reply the embassel post of donos carriers is a world of arm. i am not a prejudiced man continued joseph finsbury as a young man i travelled much nothing was too small or too obscure for me to acquire at sea i studied seamanship learned the complicated knots employed by mariners and acquired the technical terms at naples i would learn the art of making macaroni at nice the principles of making candied fruit i never went to the opera without first buying the book of the piece and making myself acquainted with the principal airs by picking them out on the piano with one finger you must have seen a deal sir remarked the carrier touching up his horse i wish i could add your advantages do you know how often the word whip occurs in the old testament continued the old gentleman one hundred and if i remember exactly forty-seven times do it indeed, sir, said Mr. Chandler. I should never have thought it. The Bible contains three million five hundred and one thousand two hundred and forty-nine letters. Of verses, I believe there are upwards of eighteen thousand. There have been many editions of the Bible. Wycliffe was the first to introduce it into England about the year thirteen hundred the paragraph bible as it is called is a well-known edition and is so called because it is divided into paragraphs the breeches bible is another well-known instance and gets its name either because it was printed by one breeches or because the place of publication bore that name the carrier remarked dryly that he thought that was only natural and turned his attention to the more congenial task of passing a cart of hay. It was a matter of some difficulty, for the road was narrow, and there was a ditch on either hand. "'I perceive,' began Mr. Finsbury, when they had successfully passed the cart, "'that you hold your reins with one hand. You should employ two. "'Well, I like that,' cried the carrier, contemptuously. "'Why?' "'You do not understand,' continued Mr. Finsbury. "'What I tell you is scientific fact, and reposes on the theory of the lever, a branch of mechanics. There are some very interesting little shilling books upon the field of study, which I should think a man in your station would take a pleasure to read. But I am afraid you have not cultivated the art of observation. At least we have now driven together for some time, and I cannot remember that you have contributed a a single fact.' "'This is very false principle, my good man. For instance, I do not know if you observed that, as you passed the hay-cart men, you took your left.' "'Of course I did,' cried the carrier, who was now getting belligerent. "'He'd have had the law on me if I hadn't.' "'In France now, and also, I believe, in the United States of America, you would have taken the right,' resumed the old man. He "'I would not. "'cried Mr. Chandler indignantly. "'I would have taken the left.' "'I observe again,' "'continued Mr. Finsbury, "'scorning to reply, "'that you mend the dilapidated parts "'of your harness with string. "'I have always protested "'against this carelessness "'and slovenliness of the English poor. "'In an essay that I once read "'before an appreciative audience—' string,' said the carrier sullenly. "'It's back thread.' "'I have always protested.' resumed the old man, that in their private and domestic life, as well as in their labouring career, the lower classes of this country are improvident, thriftless, and extravagant. A stitch in time— "'Who the devil are the lower classes?' cried the carrier. "'You're the lower classes yourself. If I thought you were a bloomin' Irish grand, I shouldn't have given you a lift.' The words were uttered with undisguised ill-feeling. It was plain the pair were not congenial, and further conversation, even to one of Mr. Finsbury's pathetic loquacity, was out of the question. With an angry gesture he pulled down the brim of his forage-cap over his eyes, and, producing a notebook and a blue pencil from one of his innermost pockets, soon became absorbed in calculations. On his part the carrier fell to whistling with fresh zest, and if, now and again, he glanced at the companion of his drive— It was with mingled feelings of triumph and alarm—triumph because he had succeeded in arresting that prodigy of speech, and alarm lest, by any accident, it should begin again. Even the shower, which presently overtook and passed them, was endured by both in silence, and it was still in silence that they drove at length into Southampton. Dusk had fallen. The shop-windows glimmered forth into the streets of the old seaport, In private houses, lights were kindled for the evening meal, and Mr. Finsbury began to think complacently of his night's lodgings. He put his papers by, cleared his throat, and looked doubtfully at Mr. Chandler. "'Will you be civil enough?' said he. "'To recommend me to an inn?' Mr. Chandler pondered for a moment. "'Well,' he said at last, "'I wonder how about the Trey Arms?' "'The Tregonwell Arms will do very well,' returned the old man. "'If it's clean and cheap, and the people civil?' "'I wasn't thinking so much of you,' returned Mr. Chandler, thoughtfully. "'I was thinking of my friend Watts, as keeps the house. He's a friend of mine, you see, and he helped me through my trouble last year. And I was thinking, would it be fair like on Watts to saddle him with an old party like you?' Who might be the death of him, with general information. "'Would it be fair to the house?' inquired Mr. Chandler, with an air of candid appeal. "'Mock me,' cried the old gentleman, with spirit. "'It was kind of you to bring me here for nothing, but it gives you no right to address me in such terms. "'Here's a shilling for your trouble, and if you do not choose to set me down at the Trigonwell Arms, I can find it for myself.' Chandler was surprised and a little startled, muttering something apologetic. He returned the shilling, drove in silence through several intricate lanes and small streets, drew up at length before the bright windows of an inn, and called loudly for Mr. Watts. "Is that you, Jim?" cried a hearty voice from the stable yard. "Coming in warm yourself." "I only stopped yer," Mr. Chandler explained. "Lad down an old gent as wants food and lodging." Mind, I warn you again, him. He's worse'n a temperance lecture. Mister Finsbury dismounted with difficulty, for he was cramped with his long drive and the shaking he had received in the accident. The friendly Mister Watts, in spite of the Carter's scarcely agreeable introduction, treated the old gentleman with the utmost courtesy and led him into the back parlour, where there was a big fire burning in the grate. Presently, a table was spread in the same room and he was invited to seat himself before a stewed fowl, somewhat the worse for having seen service before, and a big pewter mug of ale from the tap. He rose from supper a giant refreshed, and, changing his seat to one nearer the fire, began to examine the other guests with an eye to the delights of oratory. There were near a dozen present—all men, and, as Joseph exulted to perceive, all working men— Often already had he seen cause to bless that appetite for disconnected fact and rotatory argument which is so marked a character of the mechanic. But even an audience of working men has to be courted, and there was no man more deeply versed in the necessary arts than Joseph Finsbury. He placed his glasses on his nose, drew from his pocket a bundle of papers, and spread them before him on a table. He crumpled them, he smoothed them out, now he skimmed them over Apparently well pleased with their contents, now, with tapping pencil and contracted brows, he seemed maturely to consider some particular statement. A stealthy glance about the room assured him of the success of his manoeuvres. All eyes were turned on the performer, mouths were open, pipes hung suspended, the birds were charmed. At the same moment the entrance of Mr. Watts afforded him an opportunity. "'I observe—' said he, addressing the landlord, but taking at the same time the whole room into his confidence with an encouraging look, "'I observe that some of these gentlemen are looking with curiosity in my direction. And certainly it is unusual to see any one immersed in literary and scientific labours in the public apartment of an inn. I have here some calculations I made this morning upon the cost of living in this and other countries.' subject, I need scarcely say, highly interesting to the working classes. I have calculated the scale of living for incomes of eighty, one hundred and sixty, two hundred, and two hundred and forty pounds a year. I must confess that the income of eighty pounds has somewhat baffled me, and the others are not so exact as I could wish, for the price of washing varies very largely in foreign countries, and the different cokes and firewoods fluctuate surprisingly i will read my researches and i hope you won't scruple to point out to me any little errors that i may have committed either from oversight or ignorance i will begin gentlemen with the income of eighty pounds a year whereupon the old gentleman with less compassion than he would have had for brute beasts delivered himself of all his tedious calculations as he occasionally gave nine versions of a single income, placing the imaginary person in London, Paris, Baghdad, Spitzbergen, Bassora, Heligoland, the Scilly Islands, Brighton, Cincinnati, and Nijni Novgorod, with an appropriate outfit for each locality, it is no wonder that his hearers look back on that evening as the most tiresome they ever spent. Long before Mr. Finsbury had reached Nijni Novgorod, with the income of one hundred and sixty pounds, the company had dwindled and faded away to a few old topers and the bored but affable Watts. There was a constant stream of customers from the outer world, but so soon as they were served they drank their liquor quickly and departed with the utmost celerity for the next public house. By the time the young man with two hundred a year was vegetating in the Scilly Islands, Mr. Watts was left alone with the economist, and that imaginary person had scarce commenced life at Brighton before the last of his pursuers desisted from the chase mr finsbury slept soundly after the manifold fatigues of the day he rose late and after a good breakfast ordered the bill then it was that he made a discovery which has been made by many others both before and since that it is one thing to order your bill and another to discharge it the items were moderate and what does not always follow the total small but after the most sedulous review of all his pockets, one and ninepence halfpenny appeared to be the total of the old gentleman's available assets. He asked to see Mr. Watts. "'Here is a bill on London for eight hundred pounds,' said Mr. Finsbury, as that worthy appeared. "'I'm afraid, unless you choose to discount it yourself, it may detain me a day or two till I can get it cashed.' Mr. Watts looked at the bill, Turned it over and dog-eared it with his fingers. It will keep you a day or two, he said, repeating the old man's words. You have no other money with you? Some trifling change, responded Joseph. Nothing to speak of. Then you can send it to me. I should be pleased to trust you. To tell the truth, answered the old gentleman, I am more than half inclined to stay. I am in need of funds. "'If a loan at shillings will help you, so Tis at your service,' responded Watts, with eagerness. "'No, I think I would rather stay,' said the old man, "'and get my bill discounted.' "'You shall not stay in my house,' cried Mr. Watts. "'This is the last time you shall have a bed at the Tregonwell Arms.' "'I insist upon remaining,' replied Mr. Finsbury, with spirit. "'I remain by Act of Parliament. Turn me out, if you dare.' Then pay your bill," said Mr. Watts. "Take that," cried the old man, tossing him the negotiable bill. "Tis not legal tender," replied Mr. Watts. "You must leave my house at once." "You cannot appreciate the contempt I feel for you, Mr. Watts," said the old gentleman, resigning himself to circumstances. "But you shall feel it in one way. I refuse to pay my bill." "Oh, you don't care for your bill," responded Mr. Watts. "'What I want is your absence.' "'That you shall have,' said the old gentleman, and, taking up his forage-cap as he spoke, he crammed it on his head. "'Perhaps you are too insolent,' he added, "'to inform me of the time of the next London train.' "'It leaves in three-quarters of an hour,' returned the innkeeper with alacrity. "'You can easily catch it.' Joseph's position was one of considerable weakness. On the one hand, it would have been well to avoid the direct line of railway, since it was there he might expect his nephews to lie in wait for his recapture. On the other, it was highly desirable, it was even strictly needful, to get the bill discounted ere it should be stopped. To London, therefore, he decided to proceed on the first train, and there remained but one point to be considered, how to pay his fare. Joseph's nails were never clean. He ate almost entirely with his knife. I doubt if you could say he had the manners of a gentleman. But he had better than that a touch of genuine dignity. Was it from his stay in Asia Minor? Was it from a strain in the Finsbury Blood, sometimes alluded to by customers? At least, when he presented himself before the station-master, his salaam was truly oriental. Palm-trees appeared to crowd about the little office— and the Simoon or the Bulbul, but I leave this image to persons better acquainted with the East. His appearance, besides, was highly in his favour. The uniform of Sir Faraday, however inconvenient and conspicuous, was at least a costume in which no swindler could have hoped to prosper, and the exhibition of a valuable watch and a bill for eight hundred pounds completed what deportment had begun. A quarter of an hour later, when the train came up, Mr. Finsbury was introduced to the guard and installed in a first-class compartment, the station-master smilingly assuming all responsibility. As the old gentleman sat waiting the moment of departure, he was the witness of an incident strangely connected with the fortunes of his house. A packing-case of cyclopean bulk was borne along the platform by some dozen of tottering porters, and ultimately, to the delight of a considerable crowd, hoisted on board the van. It is often the cheering task of the historian to direct attention to the designs and, if it may be reverently said, the artifices of Providence. In the luggage-van, as Joseph was borne out of the station of Southampton East upon his way to London, the egg of his romance lay, so to speak, unhatched. The huge packing-case was directed to lie at Waterloo till called for, and addressed to one— William Dent Pittman, and the very next article, a goodly barrel jammed into the corner of the van, bore the superscription, M. Finsbury, 16 John Street, Bloomsbury. Carriage paid. In this juxtaposition, the train of powder was prepared, and there was now wanting only an idle hand to fire it off. End of Chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Wrong Box. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Wrong Box by Robert Louis Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne. Chapter 4 The Magistrate in the Luggage-Van The city of Winchester is famed for a cathedral, a bishop—but he was unfortunately killed some years ago while riding—a public school, a considerable assortment of the military, and the deliberate passage of the trains of the London and South-Western Line. These and many similar associations would have doubtless crowded on the mind of Joseph Finsbury but his spirit had at that time flitted from the railway compartment to a heaven of populous lecture-halls and endless oratory. His body, in the meanwhile, lay doubled on the cushions, the forage-cap rakishly tilted back, after the fashion of those that lie in wait for nursery-maids, the poor old face quiescent, one arm clutching to his heart Lloyd's weekly newspaper. To him, thus unconscious, enter an exeunt, again a pair of voyagers." These two had saved the train, and no more. A tandem merged to its last speed, an act of something closely bordering on brigandage at the ticket office, and a spasm of running had brought them on to the platform, just as the engine uttered its departing snort. There was but one carriage easily within their reach, and they had sprung into it, and the leader and elder already had his feet upon the floor when he observed Mr. Finsbury. "'Good God!' he cried uncle joseph this'll never do and he backed out almost upsetting his companion and once more closed the door upon the sleeping patriarch the next moment the pair had jumped into the luggage van what's the row about your uncle joseph does he object to smoking inquired the younger traveller mopping his brow i don't know that there's anything the row with him returned the other he's by no means the first comer my uncle joseph i can tell you "'Very respectable, old gentleman, interested in leather, been in Asia Minor, no family, no assets, and a tongue, my dear Wickham, sharper than a serpent's tooth.' "'Quentankerous old eh? suggested Wickham. "'Not in the least,' cried the other, "'only a man with a solid talent for being a bore. Rather cheery, I dare say, on a desert island, but on a railway journey insupportable. You should hear him on tonty.' "'That ass that started Tontines, he's incredible on Tonti.' "'By Jove!' cried Wickham. "'Then you're one of these Finsby Tontine fellows. "'I hadn't a guess of that.' "'Ah!' said the other. "'Do you know that old boy in the carriage is worth a hundred thousand pounds to me? "'There he was asleep, and nobody but you. "'But I spared him, because I'm a Conservative in politics.' "'Mr. Wickham.' pleased to be in a luggage-van, was flitting to and fro like a gentlemanly butterfly. "'By Jingo,' he cried, "'here's something for you. M. Finsbury, 16 John Street, Bloomsbury, London. M. stands for Michael. You sly dog! You keep two establishments, do you?' "'Oh, that's Morris,' responded Michael, from the other end of the van, where he had found a comfortable seat upon some sacks. "'He's a little cousin of mine. I like him myself, because he's afraid of me. He's one of the ornaments of Bloomsbury, and has a collection of some kind— birds, eggs, or something that's supposed to be curious. I bet it's nothing to my clients.' "'What a lark it would be to play Billy with the labels!' chuckled Mr. Wickham. "'By George, here's a tack-hammer. We might send all these things skipping about the premises like what's-his-name.' At this moment the guard, surprised by the sound of voices, opened the door of his little cabin. "'You would best step in your gentlemen,' said he, when he had heard their story. "'Won't you come, Wickham?' asked Michael. "'Catch me. I want to travel in the van,' replied the youth. And so the door of communication was closed, and for the rest of the run Mr. Wickham was left alone over his diversions on the one side— and on the other michael and the guard were closeted together in familiar talk i can get you a compartment here sir observed the official as the train began to slacken speed before bishop stoke station you had best get out my door and i can bring your friend mr wickham whom we left as the reader has shrewdly suspected beginning to play billy with the labels in the van was a young gentleman of much wealth a pleasing but sandy exterior and a highly vacant mind not many months before he had contrived to get himself blackmailed by the family of a Wallachian hospodar resident for political reasons in the gay city of paris a common friend to whom he had confided his distress recommended him to michael and the lawyer was no sooner in possession of the facts than he instantly assumed the offensive fell on the flank of the Wallachian forces and in the inside of three days had the satisfaction to behold them routed and fleeing for the Danube. It is no business of ours to follow them on this retreat, over which the police were so obliging as to preside paternally. Thus relieved from what he loved to refer to as the Bulgarian atrocity, Mr. Wickham returned to London with the most unbounded and embarrassing gratitude and admiration for his saviour, These sentiments were not repaid either in kind or degree. Indeed, Michael was a trifle ashamed of his new client's friendship. It had taken many invitations to get him to Winchester and Wickham Manor, but he had gone at last and was now returning. It has been remarked by some judicious thinker, possibly J. F. Smith, that Providence despises to employ no instrument, however humble, and it is now plain to the dullest, that both mr wickham and the Wallachian hospodar were liquid lead and wedges in the hand of destiny smitten with the desire to shine in michael's eyes and show himself a person of original humour and resources the young gentleman who was a magistrate more by token in his native county was no sooner alone in the van than he fell upon the labels with all the zeal of a reformer and when he rejoined the lawyer at bishopstoke His face was flushed with his exertions, and his cigar, which he had suffered to go out, was almost bitten in two. "'By George, but this has been a lark,' he cried. "'I have sent the wrong things to everybody in England. These cousins of yours have a packing-case as big as a house. I've muddled the whole business up to that extent, Finsbury, that if you were to get out, it's my belief, we should get lynched.' It was useless to be serious with Mr. Wickham. "'Take care.' said Michael, I am getting tired of your perpetual scrapes. My reputation is beginning to suffer.' "'Your reputation will be all gone for you finish with me,' replied his companion, with a grin. "'Clap it on the bill, my boy. For total loss of reputation, six-and-eightpence.' "'But,' continued Mr. Wickham, with more seriousness, "'could I be bowled out of the commission for this little jest? And it's small, but I like to be a J.P.' "'Speaking as a professional man, do you think there's any risk?' "'What does it matter?' replied Michael. "'They'll chuck you out sooner or later. Somehow you don't give the effect of being a good magistrate.' "'I only wish I was a solicitor,' retorted his companion. "'Instead of a poor devil of a country gentleman. Suppose we start one of those tontine affairs ourselves, I to pay five hundred a year, and you to guarantee me against every misfortune except illness or marriage.' (laughs) "'It strikes me,' remarked the lawyer, with a meditative laugh, as he lighted a cigar, "'it strikes me that you must be a cursed nuisance in this world of ours.' "'Do you really think so, Finsbury?" responded the magistrate, leaning back in his cushions, delighted with the compliment. "'Yes, I suppose I am a nuisance. But, mind you, I have a stake in the country. Don't forget that, dear boy.' End of chapter 4